Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at volantwear.com and follow us on our socials at volantwear. Now, before we get started with this episode, we'd like to give a shout out to Nathan Tang, our guest on episode 63, because he became an all access patron. Thanks so much for your support and keeping the podcast running, Nathan. Now, we're really excited to introduce to you our next guest for the episode of this podcast. She is a 2016 Olympian, was the European champion in 2019, is currently ranked number nine in the world in mixed doubles, has won five Commonwealth Games medals, that's three silver, two bronze, and has nine English titles to her name. You want something and somebody else is out there trying to take that from you and you have to go and get it and you know you have to go and perform. So I think the mental preparation is if you do ever feel nervous or anything like that is just view it as your body being ready. Flip your mindset on it. It's not a negative thing, it's a good thing. I know I just said I always want to win, but try and have a focus on what you can control, which is yourself and your performance. You can't control what they're going to do. You can't control the shuttles. In a lot of ways, you can't even control how you're going to perform on the day, but you can control how you react to your performance and in a game. So just think you're always just trying to perform your best. Never ever just give up because these are the times when you're going to learn. The time when it's easy and it's a magic wand, You don't actually learn that much. You just have a great day and you feel good. But you learn more from these games, so you have to make sure that you go on with a mindset of, I'm going to do everything I can. Obviously, everything you can to win, but you're going to do everything you can to perform at your best. Her name is Lauren Smith from England. Welcome, Lauren, onto the Badminton Podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Great. So I remember asking you for something to introduce you with. And I just said, hey, what are your top achievements or your favorite few? And we just spent a good 30 seconds naming them all off. So I thought I'd just get started with the first question, which is from one of our followers. His name's Jackson Kurtz. And he asks you, what achievement are you the most proud of in your career? I think it's a tough choice between two. And I think it's between the Olympics in Rio and winning the European Games 
It's really difficult because as a child, I was obsessed with the Olympics. I loved it. My family used to watch it. We used to stay up all hours, um, no matter what country it was in, we'd be watching all of these sports that were never normally on the TV. And it was such a huge inspiration for me growing up. And as soon as I kind of picked up a racket and started playing, you know, I knew it was in the Olympics. So it was like, well, if I'm going to be a badminton player, I want to be an Olympian. And that was the dream, you know, that was the childhood dream. So to go to Rio was just so huge. And Heather and I had such a tough 12 month qualification period to get there. So it was a really big reward for the hard work we put in. And yeah, when we got there, we were third in our group. So we didn't get out of the group. We won a game, you know, we were really proud of kind of how we performed and what we put in. And it was one of those situations where it's sometimes hard to explain that the biggest achievement was just being there for what we put in and you know what was expected of us almost. That was really big. But then obviously European games, that's winning, that's having a gold. And that was another thing that, you know, when you list your dreams or list your ambitions as a badminton player, you know, you're like, I want to be European champion. And I was inspired by a lot of European championship winners as well. So, you know, if you look back on the list of people that have won those titles, it's also a huge honour to be on there. So it's very hard to choose between, you know, achieving my childhood dreams and going away with the gold at um, such a prestigious event. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely sounds that way that both of them are connecting with you in different ways. And for those listeners out there who perhaps don't know, what's the story with the selection into the Olympics? You don't qualify as England, do you? You qualify as Great Britain. And how much harder is that because you've got the other neighboring countries to compete with as well? Yeah, so it's one of the few events where we actually are Team GB. You know, which is incredible because as far as kind of the way the country is at the time the Olympics is on, everyone's really behind this one team GB and the way that you get looked after and all of that stuff is incredible. But the whole badminton qualifying process is really difficult. So it, it runs from start of April to end of April, 12 months. Play as many tournaments as you want in that and the best 10 results go onto your ranking points and 16 pairs in doubles go. So it's a very small amount. I think Heather and I qualified when we were somewhere around 20 in the world because you can have only two pairs from each country, but they have to get two in, they both have to be in the top eight. So that knocks kind of a few pairs off on the way. There's also continental spaces where, for example, if there is no African pair in the top 16, but there is an African pair in the top 50, they will qualify and take one of the spaces. I think Heather and I were the last spot in of non-continental spots because obviously Europe has a great representation. So we had to be in those top few pairs. And so I think in 12 months, so in 52 weeks, I'm pretty sure we played 30 tournaments and we played in five continents across those 30 tournaments. And, you know, the traveling, the exhaustion, I would say we didn't improve as players across that 12 months because we spent so much time on the road on a plane, you know, just in hotel rooms. So that was kind of the difficulty of the process for us was just that we had to be on the road so much because we were really chasing those points and we were chasing opportunities to have walkovers where we might not normally, you know, there's a lot of tournaments where we'd probably be expected to lose first round, but we're like, we've got to be there because if you get a good draw or if something happens that's out of your control, you want to be there to get those points. But we were also then trying to play the lower level tournaments where we wanted to be winning to get those good base level points. So it's a big maths game. You know, you can have spreadsheets all over the place to try and figure it all out. But yeah, it's a crazy, crazy process. 30 tournaments in 52 weeks was quite intense. 
That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine playing 30 tournaments in 52 weeks. Like, <laughs> I think I was a zombie. I think after about three weeks after qualifying finished, it was in training and one of the girls was like, oh, it's so nice that you're back to normal. And I was like, back to normal? And she was like, yeah, you basically haven't spoken for about four months. So I was like, okay, cool. I was just literally... <laughs> Going into training, just like getting on with it and then like going away. I had nothing else going on. You're just making a beeline for training and then a beeline back home. And <laughs> that was it. I had only focus on just getting there, hitting some shuttles and going home and going to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're glad you made the Olympics in 2016 and hope that we'll be seeing you in the next Olympics as well. But before we uh, continue to talk about the Olympics or what your goals are for the future, I thought we'd rewind back a little bit. And just go through your badminton story so that for those of the listeners that haven't heard of you, I mean, I presume most people have heard of you being world number nine, but for those who haven't heard of you, it'd be really great to hear about your badminton story. So where you got started, how you got exposed and how you got to where you are today. I picked up a racket myself when I was seven and both my parents played. My cousins actually came and played at the junior club. The club I started at was my parents' club. They'd played there for long before my existence. I think they actually met there. So even when I was a baby, I would be taken down to the club and passed around to the other members while my parents went and played, you know. The priority was the badminton. And so that club was, and still is, like a family to me. It was so much about going there and the social side. And, you know, my cousins and my friends were in the junior club and people that I'd known for my whole life were in the senior club. and. I was very fortunate that coming through, a lot of those people were willing to spend time on court with me. And my mum still says now that she thought I wasn't her kid. She thought you swapped babies at the hospital when I started hitting a shuttle because I couldn't connect. And she was like, there's no way you're my child. Something's gone wrong. <laughs> so honestly, from about seven till 10, I was pretty useless. You know, I was very uncoordinated. I was quite tall and gangly. For some reason, despite being not the best, I stuck in and I really enjoyed it. And obviously eventually got a little bit better. In England, there is a junior program. We're very lucky to have it. So they give support to younger players that they think kind of on the trajectory to success. At 13 years old, I was invited to the trial weekends. I got put on the junior funding. And 12 months later, they sat down with me and they said, we're sorry, we don't think that you're good enough. We can't support you where you live because I actually lived in a really rural area of England. So I was quite out of the way for, you know, training with other players. I always just trained one-to-one with my coach. I played the club nights with the adults. I couldn't access strength and conditioning like other players could. All of those things came in to make them make that decision. So at 14 years old, I pretty much had to sit down with my family and my coach. And they asked me, do I want to do it? You know, do you want this? Because it was already difficult. There was a lot of traveling to tournaments, a lot of traveling to and cost of training. And all of a sudden we were going to have to cover that all ourselves. Say I was, <laughs> my parents were going to have to cover it. I wasn't earning any money. So, you know, it was a huge decision. And I think without even a doubt, I said, yes, I want this. You know, this is what I really want to do. This is what I really love. I was very driven and I always worked hard and my parents knew that. So as soon as I said yes, they were like, fine, you know, we'll do this. We'll put in what we can and we'll give you those opportunities. And one year later, after training without the support from the England program, I was back on. You know, I had some really great results in tournaments that year. 
I went out and I played really freely and beat a lot of people that were on this funding programs. That is a year that I think shaped me hugely as an individual. Probably the right decision. You know, they couldn't give me what they needed to give me and hadn't shown the potential that was needed. But actually, I think the grit, determination and drive that I put in in that next 12 months and what they saw of my character probably is what changed their minds. You know, and then I managed to get a little bit more support. Unfortunately, I never looked back. So I was on their funded program all the way through until now. I went to university when I finished school because I wasn't actually quite good enough to go to the National Badminton Centre in Milton Keynes at that point. That was my first experience of group training. So I was training with huge numbers of players, which is where all of a sudden, you know, you have to feed the shuttle for other people. But, you know, it was a great experience for me to kind of suddenly move into that environment and train two times a day instead of, you know, two, three times a week, which is what I was doing. And after two years of university, I got invited to Milton Keynes full time. I hadn't finished my degree at that point, but I was like, absolutely, yes, I'm coming. This is what I've wanted. I went to Mount Keynes. I eventually finished my degree over distance learning. Yeah, I played doubles with Gabby White, now Adcock, when I think I was about 20, I think it was 2012, 2013. They mixed the pairs up, got put with Gabby, had a really successful time with her. Improvement really kind of shot up at that point because it was just playing with a much more experienced player a lot of technical skills I hadn't learned before, as well as learning the mental side of playing matches in a more kind of mature and experienced way. Then I played with Heather, went to the Olympics. So that was after the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, finished playing with Gabby, played with Heather. Our goal from day one was to qualify for the Olympics. We did that, which was great. And then had a couple of other partners. Now I'm playing with Chloe. Started playing mixed in 20. I'm going to say 2017 with Marcus. And yeah, it's just kind of gone from strength to strength. I've had a lot of opportunities and I've been very lucky, but I've also worked, you know, very, very hard and moved away from home and made a lot of sacrifices to get to where I am today. Absolutely. And a testament to all of the sacrifices and hard work that you've done with everything you've achieved so far. So first of all, congratulations on a great career so far and lots more to come. Now, Lauren, I just want to rewind a little bit back to that 14-year-old Lauren. Your funding got cut, but you were so adamant that you knew that you wanted to do this. You wanted to train hard. It didn't matter about the funding. You were going to get there the next time or the next time or the next time. Where did that determination come from? Because from the start, you said Olympics was something in your family that you, you wanted to get Olympics. Was that already inbuilt at age 14? Yeah, I reckon so. You know, I remember watching Olympics. It's some of my earliest memories. So, I mean, that must be years and years beforehand. I think one thing you learn when you watch that is that you see the stories behind the athletes, not only the successful ones, but the ones that maybe don't have as good of an Olympics as they want. And you kind of, from the outside, see the highs and lows of sport. You know, I remember watching Lindang, Lee Chang-wei playing. And I was like, couldn't really decide who I wanted to win. And then right at the end, I was like, okay, yeah, Lindan, because you know he's such a legend, he's great. And then Lindan won, and all I could think was, oh, I wish Lee Chong Wei had won, because look how devastated he is. And you know, in that moment, you just have the extremes of both emotions, and you see everything that kind of goes into it, and the emotion pours out of athletes. So I think I always knew that sport was never easy, and I think you know I saw that. Some of the determination was probably just kind of who I am as a person from what my family are like. You know, me and my mom are like so stubborn, bang each other's heads and we were like, I'm right, I'm right. 
you know, we are very much like that. And if we want it, we're going to go and get it. And that's just a, in some ways a personality flaw, but I also think it's what's kind of pushed me so hard to, you know, when Bam and England turned around and said, we don't think you're good enough or we can't support you enough. I just kind of brushed that off. I was like, I don't really care what you think. It doesn't matter. I think that I can do it. My family thought that I could do it. They just kind of wanted to hear me say it. And the way that people kind of rallied around me at that point and helped me shows as well that it's not just about doing it as an individual. It's about having that amazing team around you to kind of make you believe that you can do it or to get the best out of you and to push you when you may be having a down moment. And so I think that determination was always there in, you know, before I was 14 and before they told me, we don't think you can do it. But I think, you know, credit to a lot of the people around me that made me believe that I could do it and, you know, made it so that when that decision came, I had no doubt in my mind that that I absolutely wanted to to keep pursuing badminton. I love that how you said that you just completely brushed it off and was just like, yep, I'm doing this. Who cares what you say? Because I would have thought that, you know, there'd be some sort of inkling of doubt or you might have been like, do I really want to do this? Was there actually anything like that at all? Was it just purely like, yep, I've got this? No, 100%. There's moments of doubt and moments of sort of lacking in self-confidence. And especially as a, a teenager, there's things like your friends are having a birthday party or something at the weekend and you can't go because you're going to a tournament. There's things that you miss out on and sacrifices that you make. And it's very tempting because, you know, you could go to a tournament and play rubbish and you're like, oh, I could have been at so-and-so's house having a great time. And actually I'm here feeling not very good about how I've performed. So, you know, those temptations and those thoughts are always in the back of your mind. But again, you know, it's just about remembering how great it feels when you do something well. And I think in some ways I'm quite a, not a perfectionist, but I like to get stuff right. And so, you know, even when I was in training and there were certain things that I was trying to do, I just want to stick in until I got it right. And it's like, even now there's things that I'm still trying to get right and perfect and work on that I would have been working on when I was 14. And so for me, it's always just kind of doing the best that I can to the best of my abilities. You know, my nana always used to say, if you're going to do something, do it right. And usually she was talking about, don't do the dishes and leave some dirt on the dish. But actually, you know, for me, that was, if I'm going to play badminton, I'm going to give it everything. I'm going to make sure that I've got no regrets. And if I don't make it, like a lot of athletes don't, unfortunately, and that's just the reality of sport, then I can kind of know that that's okay because I gave it my all. So there's definite moments of self-doubt wondering if they were right, feeling like it was kind of me against the world sometimes. But yeah, it's just kind of remembering that that's all kind of part of the journey and part of what will make you stronger in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Lauren, I also like the fact that you talked about the team as well and you had that support group around you that believes in you, that encourages you and helps you along the way. So who were your biggest influences? your coaches or your parents or mentors and why were they so influential for you? What action did they call you to do or what advice did they give you? Yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky over the years with the coaches that I have had. You know, like I said, I wasn't in the busier, more popular badminton areas in England. So I was a little bit more out of the way and and actually got a little bit lucky with timing of when people actually like moved into the county or became available and things like that. My first coach was my mum. She started coaching me. 
you know, she still now and again sends me tactics for people I'm about to play. And I'm like, thanks, thanks, mom. <laughs> thanks for helping. You know, so she's been there since day one. The hardest thing about being coached by your mum is, again, that there's just that conflict of the respect part of it is not quite the same when it's your parent, it is your coach. You're happy to tell them that they're wrong or you have, you know, when you're having a teenage moment, you're just like, no, I, I know better or whatever it is. So that was, had its bumps. But, you know, she did a really great job of kind of getting me going when there wasn't many people around to coach me. Also had Steve Chappell and Anne Gibson who coached me for quite a few years around, you know, before I went to uni. So that teenage sort of phase. And they both just kind of seemed to really see what made me tick as a player. They knew that for me, I like really enjoyed hard work and embraced hard work. And they found a way. So I used to do two hour sessions, one to one, I think twice a week with both of them obviously at different periods of my career. But it's like, you know, to keep a player's interest for two hours and to get the best out of them in that time is quite a difficult thing to do. You know, if I was coaching somebody, I'd find it a challenge to figure out how to make that work, especially as a player like myself was, I'd have a temper if something wasn't going right. So they probably had to balance out things that they knew were going to make me a bit angry to things that they knew would get me going and keep switching them in and out for two hours and so that didn't completely explode. (laughs) You know, so they were really great for me in knowing what made me tick as a player. I think Steve came on once at a tournament and said, if you don't win, you're walking home. And I mean, we were a five hour drive from home. And it was that sort of thing where it was, they just knew me so well, because in that moment I was so tense, I was so tight, I was so angry. And he came on and he made me laugh. And it was just the sort of personal relationship. And I still speak to them all now. And the time and energy that they put into me was just invaluable. When I had that year that I was off funding, I think Steve was my coach at the time. So we had Steve, my mum was helping. She was traveling. My mum and dad were driving me to all these tournaments. And um, my stepdad was getting into helping businesses to come in and sponsor me to help fund a few of these tournaments. And we called ourselves Team Lauren. And it was just this silly little thing that we had where, you know, I'd go to a junior tournament and I'd win like £10 because that was what you won at a junior tournament. And it was all like, right, what's the split between all the Team Lauren? And it was like a pound for every, you know, silly things like that that just made light of a difficult situation sometimes. And it was just so important to me to have them people around me and with me. And they lifted me so much. And I mean, the amount of good advice they've given me, I could sit here and talk about it all day long. They toughened me up. They made sure I wasn't too hard on myself. They made me laugh. They made sure I enjoyed playing. You know, everything I am today as a player has come from those sort of grassroots that they all gave me. I can really sense that gratitude that you have for them, Lauren. And it seems like there was just a wonderful team of people who really knew who you were, what drove you and how to help you succeed. So I'm going to put you on the spot now, Lauren, just for a moment. Mum has given you some advice in the past for players that you were going to play. Have you ever actually taken some of that advice in the last year? Maybe before last year, in the last two years, and that has been successful, if mum's listening. If mum's listening, she absolutely has. You know what? She's probably equally as good at spotting tactics as I am sometimes, especially in women's doubles. I find it really hard to see tactics in women's doubles because it's just like, you know, there's another good quality shot, there's another good quality shot, look at nobody making any mistakes. And yet she sees quite a lot of patterns with how people attack. So, you know, got to give her credit. She's very good and she watches a lot of badminton and she's quite keen. (laughs) So thanks, ma'am. Now, Lauren, on the flip side here now, you've had such a great team. You had your parents, you had your mum and coaches there to really support you. 
But on the other side, were there people who were doubting you? Did you notice much of that back chatter and did that affect you much at all? I mean, now it's not something I specifically remember. You know, I can't go, oh yeah, that person said this. I remember being told when I was 14, there's a badminton school, I think it was in Hampshire. It was probably about a six hour drive from where I lived. They're like, if you move there, then you've got a chance. If you don't move there, basically, we don't think you're going to make it. That was just one specific person that I had that conversation with. And when I was younger, I suffered a lot with homesickness. So even going away to a junior camp for a night or two, and I was away from home, away from my parents, I got very upset, very stressed, very emotional. And I struggled with it a lot. So the idea of moving to a school at the other side of the country was pretty horrible. And I kind of rejected the idea straight away. So I knew that there was people out there that kind of doubted me. You know, there's always players that you're up against that maybe don't want you to succeed. There's a lot of kind of rivals in the sport, probably more than there are um, allies in a way. But at the same time, that's as much the driver as the people that believe in you, because I quite like proving people wrong. I quite like being right. Sometimes you need people to believe in you and tell you you can do it. And sometimes you need to kind of see those people that don't want you to succeed and go, no, I'm going to do this because I'm going to show you, you know, that you're wrong. I can do this and you shouldn't have doubted me. And it sounds a little bit bitter, but, you know, it's just another driver, driving force there that you kind of just want to say to people, like, how can you think that? Like, you can't say that to me. You can't not believe in me. And it's that self-belief in yourself. And I think the ability to brush stuff off. I've got red hair, so, you know, I've probably got a lot of stick at primary school for having red hair. And, you know, kids can be really mean. So growing up, I was used to sort of snide comments here and there. I wasn't bullied by any stretch of the imagination, but kids are kids and they'll say certain stuff. And you just get thick skin to certain things. And so to people to not believe in me, that was fine. Because, you know, like I said, it was just somebody to prove wrong. Awesome. So let's go into more of your professional career now, Lauren. You first played women's doubles. You had so many different partners. You had Gabby Adcock or Gabby White back then, Heather Olva. And then we also had Chloe and Sarah Walker. So you had quite a lot of doubles players. And from our conversations previously, you were more of the rear court player. But then you've had to transition into the mixed doubles where you had to transfer from a rear court player to more of a front court player. How was that? What was that transition like for you? Yeah, so it was a bit of a strange one. As a junior, I was always very strong, always very physical. So it was kind of, I was quite clearly a doubles player. I did play singles until the end of my junior career because it was good for movement. But then it was just always after that, eyes on doubles. And I did play a little bit of mix here and there, but never had a lot of kind of touch and skill or control. I was very kind of strong and a little bit wild, probably. So when I first went to Milton Keynes, I got put with Gabby. I did a huge amount of work on rear court work, consistency from the back, being able to just not make any mistakes and run all day long. And I kind of kept that style playing with Heather as well. Heather was maybe more at the rear court and I was more forward as a 50-50 in that partnership, but still never really worked on my net game. And then you go to 2017 and the coaches kind of said to Marcus and myself, you're both going to be going to the Gold Coast Commonwealth for level doubles why don't you play mixed? They just knew it was another kind of opportunity to have another pair in the draw, an opportunity for potentially another medal. Who knows? We didn't really know what it was going to look like. I mean, Marcus's career, obviously, you know, it's been great in men's, but if you look back, he did a lot of great stuff in mixed doubles as well. 
for me, it was kind of, <laughs> let's see what Lauren can do. We actually put her to the net. And so, you know, it was just a kind of thing to see how it goes. And the plan was to do Commonwealth and stop. So I did start practicing a little bit more around the net. From the beginning, Marcus and I played a more level style mixed, as in I would come to the back and he would go to the net. Not as much as I would in the ladies, obviously, but it kind of forced me to be at the net and forced me to practice things. Like you can't get away with not having a net shot in mixed or not being able to kill. It just isn't going to work. So I spent a little bit of time in the mornings doing extra technical work around the net. It was around the time that Anthony Clark had kind of come in and started coaching and he was wandering through the hall one day and I was practicing a brush off. So it's if they've played a really tight net shot and I'm trying to, instead of, I can't kill it, I'm just trying to like brush it. I was doing like a full on windscreen wiper action from like floor to ceiling and Clarky walked past and he was like, um, what are you trying to do here? <laughs> now, if what you're trying to do is even unidentifiable for a coach, you know that you're not doing it very well. And so he changed the technique and we worked on that. And then just over time, he gradually started to work on more and more little things. It's really weird because I would, still wouldn't say I'm the most skillful player, not by a long stretch. I'm just a bit more consistent and I kind of rely on my sort of speed and aggressiveness at the net still. But working on the touch around the net and the kind of calmness and having a relaxed hand, because I think I used to hold it like a club. I was just like, just hit a shot. It was just everything was tense. Now it's a little bit softer. And actually, if you step back into my mid-court game and my rear-court game, it's improved that as well. Obviously, I have no regrets about what I've done and what I've trained, but I almost think, you know, would my game have improved more if I'd put some time and energy into my technique at the net because it transfers back? Even as a rear-court player, you know, I've seen the benefits of having that control. And actually now playing with Chloe, I'm definitely the net player in that partnership. And so it's completely flipped my game you know, it's working really well. I think the good thing is that I've still got that ability in the rear court to go back. It's not like if you put me at the back, I'm trying to get forward really quickly. I can still very much hold my own there and that helps in mixed and women's. And so, yeah, it was a surprise to everyone when the mix started going quite well. And I feel like the best thing about it is there's still so many areas that I've got to work on technically and tactically in the sort of mid and, and net game. And so for me, that's like, well, okay, I've got this far with what I've got at the moment. And yeah, I can still identify a long list of things that I want to work on and improve. So hopefully that means there's still more to come from me. And so, yeah, I think huge credit to Clarkie for actually putting the time in with me at the net because it was a lot of time. I made a lot of mistakes and I don't like making mistakes. And he really persisted with me and, and obviously it's paying off. Yeah, and certainly exciting times ahead as you continue to close that gap at the net then, Lauren. You talked about, I guess, a very deep memory of the brush-off that you were doing. Would you say that that was the most important thing that helped you with making the transition? Or was there like another part, you know, that has been very challenging that you've been able to overcome and that's really sort of allowed you to close that gap? I think the brush-off one is just a really clear memory for me because actually with that shot, I remember going into the Dutch Open, Marcus and I actually won it. And I feel like I used that shot on like just so much. Any shot I went for, I was like, just go for that technique that you've practiced. <laughs> and we ended up winning and it was quite an eye-opening moment of, oh, actually, maybe this can be more than just kind of a go to the Commonwealth and play thing. You know, we beat some good pairs, we put in some good performances and we were dangerous. And, you know, it was very much an eye-opener for me. And I think technically it probably wasn't the biggest thing that I've changed or the biggest factor. But belief-wise, I think it probably was because it was like, here's a shot that I couldn't do. 
that I thought I'd never be very good at, that I changed, you know, I've got it right, it's worked, and I've put it into a tournament, and I've won. And you kind of go, oh, well, actually, this is possible, because nobody ever told me I couldn't play at the net, but nobody ever kind of said, you can play at the net. So for me, I was always like, I'm a Rio player. I'm allergic to that white thing at the net. I don't like it. I can't bleed when I go there. I'm like, get me back here. When I started to do that, and I started to think, this is working. I can do this. I can see the success of it. Then you kind of go, right, well, I've got to be open to trying other things now. This is a memory from when I was a kid and I was training with my mum. We tried to do cross-cut net shots. And because I just decided as a child, I can't play them. I can't do these. Had a tantrum. The training session finished about 45 minutes early. And we both went home. And that was the end of that. And it was like, I would never, ever practice a cross-court net shot. And um, <laughs> it's a funny story that gets told at Christmas or whatever with the family. And then actually, after doing those brush-offs, I was like, all right, I mean, 20 years later, it's probably time that I try and do a cross-court net shot. But all of a sudden, it was kind of the belief of, okay, maybe I can play at the net. Maybe it is possible. And, you know, the more and more that I started to kind of practice and try different things. And we were quite experimental with how we trained. Clark, you tried a lot of different things in my grip and a lot of different things with my approach to shots. And we got there in the end. But it just took a lot of work and it took a lot of failure, which is something that I've never really enjoyed as a player. I like to get things right. So I was just a lot more open to getting it wrong in the process of getting it right. That's great. And I guess speaking from my perspective and what a lot of players ask me as well when they either transition to doubles or they're trying to improve their front court is, Lauren, when you started going to the front court and started training, did you notice that there's two main themes that I always hear about? The first one is that you're just looking at shuttles go past. You're like, whoa, I can't cut up. No, I can't up. Where? And you just can't find anything to hit because it's just going too fast. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that because you're really trying to react, when it comes in front of you, you kind of rush it and go really quickly and you try to hit it too fast or you try to hit it too hard because you're thinking, yes, I've got one, and I just go and hit it. Did you struggle with any of that kind of feeling? And how did you manage that if you did? I think I definitely struggled with the cutting out stuff when I went on court with Marcus. Obviously, in women's doubles, because the smash is slower, you have more time to react to fence, whereas all of a sudden... Marcus's shot shoots past, the next one shoots back in. And a big thing for that, for me, was actually getting used to Marcus's attack, but also getting Marcus to use slices and angles and shots that were a little bit slower. So if he did full smash, as a net player, I was almost like, I'm not really going to get it. You know, I'm going to let it fly past because I don't have time. I'm not quick enough. And he definitely is. <laughs> you know, so it's the shots where he clips or he slices and it's a little bit more of a purposeful setup for the net player. I think sometimes as the net player, you can kind of be like, I'm not really getting involved here. I'm not really doing very much. I need to do something. And then you try and take a shot that's not yours. And actually, sometimes a game just doesn't require you to get involved. Sometimes you just fill in that space and saying to a player, you can't hit it here, you know, because I'm dangerous. And if they're just playing through to your rear court player, then either it's positive because you're constantly keeping the attack or you need to figure out how to change the attack from the rear court to get the net player involved or to get you to switch around your partner. So I think it's sometimes accepting that as a net player, you might not hit a shuttle. You know, for six shots, you won't hit it. But then you've got to be ready. The hardest thing is the seventh shot when it comes to you, you've got to be ready. And that's when it comes on to the second point of, you know, you're like, oh, ready, ready, ready. And then this soft one comes in, you're like, oh my God, this is my opportunity. And you're like, yay. And then you just slap it in the bottom of the net and you go, I'm so sorry. Your partner's like blue in the face and you've just dobbed it in the bottom of the net. Um, 
that was a huge, huge work area for me, having a relaxed hand, having a relaxed grip. And as much as you've got that speed in your feet, you know, you've got to be constantly moving. You're always kind of adjusting, not like in a big way, but you're always moving. You're always reacting to what's coming past you and then what's coming back. So that when the opportunity comes, you can time your movement. So you can still be really fast with your feet, but you calm with your upper body because, you know, you have to remember that you might not kill it. How often really at top level badminton people just have a nice, easy kill. You just have to keep setting up, keep that pressure on and always think about playing for another shot. So instead of thinking, I've got to do something now, this is my opportunity. Think about the best shot to play to either feed yourself, you know, can you just poke it at them so that they hit you the easy one and then you've got your nice kill? Or can you hit it in a way that your partner's going to get the next one? There's a lot of mindset things like that, which are really difficult as net player because like you say, it is so fast, it is so frantic. You don't get many chances to get involved. And when you do, you think that you need to do something amazing and you need to kind of let that mindset go. And it's something I've worked on a lot, especially having those shots flying past, fast, fast, frantic, and then going, okay, now relax and play like quite a skillful shot. It does take practice. And I think a lot of it is a mental thing. Great answer. Uh, it just resonates so well when you just hit it into that net and you just think, oh, I've yeah. finally got a chance. I've only got one shot in the rally and I've just stuffed it up. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, Lauren, we've dug pretty deeply into say the, the playing part of it, like when you're on court and playing, but we do really like to talk to top players and see what their routines are that helps them perform at their best. So if we're looking at say a week out from a really important competition, can you take us through what you would normally do? Do you train harder? Do you train easier? Do you have more fun? And then do you change your diet at all? And then all the way up to that warm up, do you have a certain ritual or a way that you warm up that really helps you perform? Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting one because at first my reaction to, do you change anything the week before? I was like, no, I don't change anything. But that's probably not true. I think there's definitely an element it's probably just because it's been that long since I've had a tournament, I forgot what I do before a tournament, but <laughs> um, there's definitely an element of tapering. You know, you can train in quite a few different ways. You can train in a really sort of endurance, fitness-based way. So you want to be training fatigued and you want to be working really hard. You want to get a lot of volume in your training. But that's definitely not what you want to be doing a week out of a tournament. That's when you want the volume to be down. You want the quality to be high. You want the intensity to be really, really high. And you also want to incorporate, or I would want to incorporate, exercises that make me feel good, exercises that make me tick. So for example, doing brushes, you know, I'll do that the week before a tournament because I'm like, I know this is key in my head to what makes me a good player. And just bringing in exercises like that, especially with a long training block that we've had at the minute, we've worked on a lot of different things, things that maybe aren't our plan A game, you know, because we've been trying to work on our weaknesses. Where are we losing? How can we change that? But then coming up to a tournament, you need to kind of go, what is our best game? What makes us play well? And you want to practice that style. And that's the style you want to really hammer home before you go into those events, especially the events that you're trying to peak for, because you want to be going in there with your best game, not with all of these things that you've been working on and changing. Um, you just kind of hope that they'll fall into the game as needed. For example, in weights, instead of doing three or four sets, just drop it down to two sets but do two really good quality sets and take a little bit of a longer rest between them so that everything you're doing is at high intensity. And it's, you know, it's a little bit more based around being explosive than it is having that endurance. A week before a tournament, the hard work is done. You're not really going to gain much far as endurance goes. So just focus on sharpening. Obviously at a tournament, 
sometimes differs depending on where we are and, and what we have access to, what time of day the game's on and all of those sorts of things. I like to have had a hit in the hall before we play. Normally we can do that the day before the event starts. Nutrition-wise, it's difficult depending on what you can have access to. I think carbs and protein are the obvious priorities. You know, you want to make sure that you feel full. I don't like to eat any later than three hours before my match because it just doesn't digest very well for me, especially pasta or rice. It really sits on me. So I just make sure that I've eaten well in advance of actually playing. Then I know that everything's settled and it's kind of all gone through my system, thin my muscles, ready to go. I do have a warm-up routine. I kind of every time I go through the same mobility, you jogging, you're lunging, like skipping fast feet and then having a hit. So I have a set routine that I've kind of developed with our S&C coach over the years. Usually warm up for about the duration of the match before, unless it's like Kevin and Marcus, and you know that it's going to be 20 minutes, in which case you start a bit earlier. <laughs> but you know, you want probably around 45 minutes to warm up properly. You know, there's nothing I specifically do for mindset. I do watch video the day before, make some notes, sit down and chat to the coaches sit down and chat to my partner, of course, so that we've got a game plan. I think it's weird. It's one of them things that almost happens so naturally now that I don't even realize I'm doing it because I don't want to ever get to the point of, oh, I haven't been able to do this exercise or this routine or this certain habit. I haven't been able to do that. So I feel like stressed that I might lose. You know, I don't want to get superstitious in that sense. So I try to just kind of go with the flow a little bit. Also make sure that the things that I need to do you know, the warm-up's the key thing. You know, if you can't get exactly the right food you like, or you can't watch the video because you can't, your internet connection's not good, or your partner's been on court, so you've not been able to have a chat, just make sure that you've warmed up properly. And when you step on that court, love all, you are ready to go because, you know, you'll figure it out if you need to figure it out, I think. Yeah, great, Lauren. And I think that answers one of our followers' questions at J-Y-C-H-I-A-M-6. The question was, what is your pre-match routine? How do you manage the mental aspect of a match? I'm not sure if there's anything additional that you want to add to that. I think just, you know, I get asked quite often about nerves. People talk about the mental aspect before a match. You know, people say, how do you deal with being nervous? Somebody once said to me, I just, I feel sick before a game. And I think I've always had the view that nerves are normal. Nerves are just something that you're going to feel it's more adrenaline. So if you don't view it as nerves and you view it as adrenaline, then you think, okay, well, actually, I'm just getting ready. You know, my fight or flight is on and and I'm going to fight because I'm going on court and that's what I have to do. And it's just all your systems firing up and going and it's that competition feeling. Because I think denying that you have those feelings and saying, oh, I'm not nervous. Personally, I don't think that that would be true. I mean, some people might feel like that. Some people might just be like, yeah, whatever, it's just a game. But for me, you know, I want to win. I always want to win. And so there is going to be that aspect of nerves because you want something and somebody else is out there trying to take that from you and you have to go and get it and, you know, you have to go and perform. So I think, you know, the mental preparation is if you do ever feel nervous or anything like that is just view it as your body being ready. Flip your mindset on it. It's not a negative thing. It's a good thing. I know I just said I always want to win, but try and have a focus on what you can control, which is yourself and your performance. You can't control what they're going to do. You can't control the shuttles. In a lot of ways, you can't even control how you're going to perform on the day. But you can control how you react to your performance and in a game. So just think, you know, you're always just trying to perform your best. And 
whether that's that you just go on and you've got a magic wand in your hand and everything comes off, which some days it does, or you go on and it just feel like you can't really do anything or you feel like your opponents are just hurting you a lot. You know, in those situations, can you try and change stuff? Can you try something different? Have you got a plan B? Never, ever just give up because these are the times when you're going to learn. The time when it's easy and it's a magic wand, you don't actually learn that much. You just have a great day and you feel good. And can't say I don't enjoy those games, but you learn more from these games. So you have to make sure that you go on with a mindset of I'm going to do everything I can, perform at my best, not everything I can. Obviously, everything you can to win, but you're going to do everything you can to perform at your best. That's great. I love that shift in mindset where you're taking the negativity of nerves and you're switching to something saying, hey, you're getting ready. Your body's getting ready for action. When you're doing that for yourself, do you do anything that triggers you to make that change? Like, do you listen to music? Are you a sociable person before or are you kind of like, don't talk to me kind of person? What's that like? I'd say I'm quite social. I don't really put on music. It's something I used to do when I was a junior. But now I think because I'm a very fired up, very energetic player, I try and have quite a presence on court. And the way that I play best is when I'm very fired up, really like ready to go and pumped up. So I don't want to kind of zone in and go like really inside myself before a match or from my partners. You know, maybe it's the thing of being a doubles player as well as you've got somebody else that you need to communicate with. So for me, I just kind of like to be quite relaxed before a game. I like to, you know, yes, have a clear mind and think about your tactics, but I don't need to be too pent up and too ready before I actually step on court because that will come out of me when the umpire says the war player. Or even, you know, when the knock-up starts on the court, that's when, you know, game face is on. And matches can be so long, you know, you can be playing for over an hour. If I spent my 45-minute warm-up all like in my own head and really focused and really intense, I think it would exhaust me. But that's a very personal preference. I wouldn't say that that'd be the case for everybody. But I think part of my preparation is that warm-up routine of, you know, even so if I do like a lunge with a twist, it's I do six of them and then I do six on the other side. And that's something that I can control. And it's like, I quite like to, to know that I've done equal on both sides and, you know, little things like that. And those are the things that are getting me set into that, you know, sort of disciplined match mindset and knowing that I have that exact routine every time before a match, even though I'm chatty and I'm relaxed and I'm talking to my partner or my coach and, you know, it's not too tense. My body is getting ready to play because it recognises that routine. It knows what's coming. And then, yeah, as soon as I get on the court, then that's when I think I try and kind of get into that game zone. That's fantastic. So great insights there for everyone who wants to prepare for their matches. Everyone is different. Everyone has their individual things, but I think definitely take some of Lauren's ideas and try them in your own match because you could find that doing six lunges on each leg does make you feel good as well before your (laughs) match. Lauren, we've been speaking for a little bit of time now and it's gone by really, really quickly. Henry and I are thinking we've had so many other questions prepared, but we've just smashed through the time. So just for this summing up part, we just had some of the questions from a followers. So we're going to do a bit of a quick fire if that's okay, Lauren. So the first one is from Jackson Kurtz again, another question from him. He asked, what was the moment that you felt had the most growth in your career? So like, was there a particular moment where you felt you really grew as a player and as a person? I think the brush off one is a great example because that was me opening myself up to things that I'd failed at so much before. I also think there was a moment when I went to university, when I moved away from home and the environment for me completely changed. 
I just think that was a huge growth of maturity for me and, you know, a big step in kind of moving forward and making those big sacrifices for my career. Fantastic. All right, moving on to the next one, Lauren. So we have at Cecily Jensen, hopefully I'm saying your name correctly, Cecily. Cecily Jensen, 96. She asked two questions. The first question is, who is your badminton idol? I'm going to say Hendra Setuan. I played Indian League in the same team of him and he's just, he's so humble and he's achieved so much. So he is a huge inspiration. Yeah, totally agree. He is pretty awesome. And from Cecily again, who is your toughest opponent in Europe and in the world? That's a good question. In the world, I think obviously you've got the top Chinese pair. Zheng Siwei is just an incredible player. He, Huang is also very difficult to play against. In the women's, any of the Japanese pairs, they're like brick walls. In Europe, I think the Stoevers in the women's doubles are just really, really physically strong. You know that when you go on court against them, you're going to have a hard match. And in the mixed, uh, we've had a lot of tough games against Mark and Isabel from Germany. So at the moment, they seem to be another great pair from Europe. Yep. Fantastic. And the next one is from Chan underscore Dan 1760. What do you think is the main role of the female player in mixed doubles? I think it's really hard is in some ways they've got to just be good where they are and which sounds really weird, but I think the key role is that the woman is not trying to do too much, but she is doing her job well. So she's making decisive movements so that the guy can choose to cover her up or choose, has obvious movements to cover. The girl has to be very decisive. And I also think a key role is that the girl shows confidence because mixed is such a game of basically the man trying to expose the woman. It's most basic form. So you need to be confident. You need to show strength. You need to show that you cannot be bullied. So I think that sort of mindset of the woman is also a very key part. That's as short as I can make that answer. Chandan did have a follow-up question, but I think we'll have to skip this one because we'd probably spend like half the podcast on it because the question was how is women's doubles and mixed doubles different? So Chandan, we'll have to skip that one for <laughs> we'll have to skip that one for a uh, another podcast. Maybe we'll ask another we'll that for a whole week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But we'll move on to our next question from Chiquita Deboulet, a Trinidadian professional badminton player. She is asking, if you could take any skill and add it to your skill set, what would it be and from which player? I mean, having Praveen Jordan smash, imagine, is very, very handy. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Especially girl had it, no one would know what to do. But if I went down more of a skill route, I think if I could have Hendra's defence, so I'm going to go to Hendra Seti one again, just because we've already mentioned what an absolute hero he is. But the way that he defends, is so calm and it's like people just could pile the pressure on him and he just seems to be able to just get it away and just deal with it every single time and I think it doesn't seem like a skill but it massively is because he's seeing those spaces and reading the game so incredibly well so if I could have a bit of that as well it'd be pretty nice. A bit of Hendra's defense to share around for the world would be very beneficial for the world I think. I think we all need a little bit of it. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Now, the next one is from Mitalim Designs. This is a cool question as well. What goes through your mind when you're defending a smash? So Praveen is hanging in the air and he's just about to launch a straight smash right at you. What's going through your mind? 
how to channel Hendra Setia on. Be Hendra. To be honest, it's one of them things that happens so quick that you don't really have time to think about it. You know, it's literally like you've got milliseconds. But I think a lot of the time with any shot, you've trained it, you've drilled it. So you're not really thinking. And the more you think about it, the more you sort of slow yourself down or stiffen yourself up. So you probably just should be thinking quite clear. And in a lot of ways, if I'm under that level of pressure, I'm just going to be thinking, just play it back straight. Just get a racket onto it. Because at that point, I'm not going to hit anything creative or anything special. I just have to make them play another shot. Yeah. All right. Final question. You're probably going to have the same answer for this one. This comes from at Coco Tau 8. Who is your favorite player, Lauren? (laughs) Ah. Kendra. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with um, a woman and I'm going to say Carolina Marin. Recently watched her Amazon documentary and she is just an absolute force of nature. Her strength and her determination and her work ethic and just everything about her is just hugely inspiring so if anyone's not watched that and you can watch it please do it is incredible you know what she's so lovely and so friendly and I just think that she is hopefully going to go down as one of the best players ever because there's still so much that I think she can achieve her mental strength and her resilience has been massively inspiring yeah, I've told Henry to watch it as well because it's so just such a different kind of um, mindset. I think it's just a different level. The the training and the specifics of it, yeah, it's fantastic. I think it just shows how much needs to go in that sort of level of achievement. You can't get what she has achieved by just being talented or just luck or anything like that. To have her level of consistency of achievement and to come back from injury like she has, it's so much hard work and sacrifice. And yeah, just everything that she does is just about being a professional. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that ends the quick fire, even though some of those questions were not very easy to just quick fire. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not good at quick fire. I do talk a lot. No, that's good. <laughs> We've extracted so much information from you. It's been fantastic. So one last question from us, which is what are the plans for Lauren Smith in the future, both on the court and outside the court, if you have any other career aspirations, etc. So I think the obvious upcoming goal is Tokyo 2021. You know, we've already put in so much to qualify in and hopefully in the coming months we'll be able to finish that process and qualify in mixed doubles and women's doubles, which would be amazing. Then obviously the training block leading up to that will kind of be full focus on there. We've also got world championships coming in 2021. It's going to be quite a busy year. And then I've never said I want to retire at a certain age or I want to retire at a certain point or anything like that. I am 29 now, so I'm coming towards the later stages of my career. But I've always kind of believed that when the time is right to stop, that I'll just know. I would hate to say, you know, after Tokyo, I'm going to stop. One, it's too soon. And also it just kind of puts such a a stop on your game. And I still believe that I'm improving. I still believe there's areas for me to improve on. So, you know, I just want to keep working away at them, chipping away at what I can. And I think I'll know when I've kind of done everything I can and, and the time is right. Hopefully I'll be able to stop quite satisfied with what I've done. We will see. I mean, the big dream, I'd love to open my own coffee shop. I absolutely love coffee. Awesome. Started drinking it in Australia, actually. My first ever coffee. Oh, really? Australia, yeah. So you guys started this. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing coffee over there. So yeah, I'd love to open my own coffee shop. That would be my big dream, whether or not it'll work out. It's just one of those things that I will 
see what position I'm in at the time. But, you know, I'd never want to turn my back on badminton. I've got so much from it myself that if there's an opportunity for me to give back in any way, whether that be coaching or whatever opportunity comes up, I'll definitely be open to all of those things because, you know, hopefully all of the experiences I've had and everything I've learned means that I've got quite a lot to give back and quite a lot of knowledge to share with other people. So, you know, it'd be great if I have an opportunity to do something like that and then, you know, have the coffee shop on the side and then pop to coaching in the evening or whatever it is. Um, yeah. We'll see what life throws at me. I'm uh, very open to what comes. Yeah. I look forward to visiting your coffee shop in the future, Lauren. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like badminton themed or something like the coffee can come like a shuttlecock coffee. If you can get your listeners to come up with some badminton coffee shop yeah. names, send them my way. If you guys can get that Berlin. <laughs> For sure. So Lauren... Listeners would have gotten a lot of value out of this podcast. Myself and Jeff would have gotten a lot of value out of this podcast. And we've certainly really enjoyed our conversation as well. And we hope that you continue to close those gaps and you know produce greater and greater results and achieve whatever you're hoping to achieve in the future. Now, if listeners do want to follow you on your progress and see that coffee shop in the future, see your greater results in the future on the badminton court as well, where can they find you? So Instagram is probably the best place to find me. It is at Lozzers123. So that's L-O-Z-Z-A-Z-123. I mean, I think that was like an 11-year-old's decision to go with that name. And now I'm stuck with it. So yeah, if you guys want to come and join me on there, yeah, I try and keep up to date with, with what's going on. Um, post a few badminton tips where I can. So it'd be great if, uh, if I saw you over there. Awesome. So we'll put that in the description in the podcast as well for followers. And so, Lauren, from the Badminton Podcast, myself and Jeff, thank you so much again for coming onto the podcast. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, guys. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback, or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.